This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. So we haven't seen any public opinion polls out of Ohio, at least I haven't. I know that both campaigns have internal polling that they do, but either way, what's evident is that Chantel Brown, the incumbent who's running against Nina Turner, who is primarying her, she's got to be afraid because the super PAC who supports her, which is bankrolled by an oil mogul, is spending lots and lots of money to defeat Nina Turner. So even though we don't necessarily know where they're at with regard to numbers, this is kind of a sign that perhaps Chantel Brown is a little bit more worried than she's leading on. So The Lever has a really interesting report about how much money is being sunk into this campaign recently, just at the last minute before the May 3rd primary. So as Andrew Perez of The Lever explains, one month after Samson Energy mogul Stacey Schusterman poured $2 million into DMFI PAC, the group purchased TV ads starting Monday to boost Representative Chantel Brown in her primary campaign rematch against former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner in a newly redrawn Cleveland congressional district. The primary election date is May 3rd. Last year, DMFI PAC spent $1.5 $9 million attacking Turner and promoting Brown, helping the latter win the seat in a special election. The group also spent $1.4 million attacking Sanders during his 2020 campaign. Turner, who co-chaired Senator Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign, has been campaigning for a Green New Deal and pressing the Biden administration to ban fracking. Brown has declined to co-sponsor some of the House Democrats' most high-profile climate legislation, including the Climate Emergency Act, even after United Nations scientists' recent dire warning about the crisis. While Brown's campaign website says she supports the principles laid out in the Green New Deal, she has not co-sponsored the measure in Congress. Schusterman chairs Oklahoma-based Samson Energy, whose website describes it as a company that was formed to allow the Schusterman family to remain in the oil and gas exploration and production business following their sale of Samson Investment Company in 2011. The company has been one of the country's per-well emitters of greenhouse gas emissions. Hmm, very interesting. I wonder why an oil mogul would spend so much for own money to keep Chantel Brown in Congress. This is a Democrat that we're talking about here. This is not a Republican that we're talking about here. This is a Democrat and an oil mogul is spending millions and millions of dollars to keep Chantel Brown in Congress. That should tell you a lot about Chantel Brown, right? That oil mogul fought to get Chantel Brown this seat and Chantel Brown is delivering when it comes to policy. This is what corruption looks like. It might be legal corruption, legalized bribes effectively, but it's still corruption nonetheless. And, you know, this oil mogul is invested in this race because Chantel Brown has proven that she is loyal to said oil mogul. Now, I'm not sure why DMFI even calls itself DMFI. They might as well call it the Schuster Pack because this is a super pack that is largely bankrolled by this one oil mogul. And this is Democratic majority for Israel. This is a Democratic Party super PAC taking money from an oil mogul. You think that any uh, organization at all, even if it's a super PAC, like these are inherently corrupt organizations, right? But you think that any organization associated with Democrats 
would reject oil mogul money. You'd think that the Democratic Party would view this as taboo and, you know, call on uh, this, this super PAC to denounce and reject these donations, but they're not doing that. It's just, it, it's truly gross. And it goes to show you who would be the real fighter for climate change. It's not Chantel Brown, it's Nina Turner. Because Nina Turner actually supports a Green New Deal and supports any legislation, even the milk toast legislation that the Democrats are proposing to move us closer in the right direction, just simply declaring climate change an emergency. I mean, as you've seen from the article, Chantel Brown won't even support the bare minimum. It's it's gross. But now you know the price tag of Chantel Brown. Perhaps if the uh, climate change mitigation groups like the renewable energy sector formed a powerful enough lobby, all they have to do to buy Chantel Brown's loyalty is outspend this oil mogul. So you know the price tag. It's a million dollars, about two million dollars. And then you could just buy her back in the other direction. But see, what's great about Nina Turner is she can't be bought. And her campaign manager released a statement explaining that and explaining why this pay-to-play practice is so damaging to our democracy. They released a statement following this news saying the reason special interests are committed to this election is because Chantel Brown relies on their money to stay in power. She has already demonstrated that she will do their bidding and proven she is more than willing to mislead the people of Greater Cleveland. They go on to explain, sadly, right here in Ohio 11, those same corrupt interests are pumping money into campaigns and super PACs because they know Nina Turner and progressives like her aren't going to Washington to be a partner with them. Let's be clear, those corporate interests don't make donations, they make investments, and they expect a return on those investments. And the reason why they're so committed to keeping Chantel Brown in power is because their investment is paying off. It's it's bearing fruit. She's doing their bidding. And it, it, again, I've got to go back to what happened last week, how the Congressional Progressive Caucus endorsed Chantel Brown over Nina Turner. Chantel Brown is a member of the New Democrat Coalition, which is a corporate wing of the party. They formed their own little uh, caucus. She's part of the centrist caucus and the progressive caucus simultaneously. And the Congressional Progressive Caucus, because they have no standards, they accepted her and then now they endorsed her because they want to protect their incumbents as caucuses do. It's just, it's it's a joke. It's a joke. And this is why so many people feel discouraged and demoralized and why they tune out of politics altogether and just stop voting because things like this happen, right? It feels really like an insurmountable obstacle to get progressives elected because you send in $5 and then one oil mogul sends in like a million dollars or $2 million. And even the one caucus in Congress who in theory should be helping to expand the progressive coalition is now just a bunch of useful idiots, I guess, for corporate Democrats and their donors like the fossil fuel industry and oil moguls. So it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's either we take drastic action or we all go extinct. The planet becomes uninhabitable. But yet, oil moguls are still funding these campaigns of Democrats who are supposed to be the party that fights to stop climate change. And they accept the money. Chantal Brown accepts that money. If she had any integrity, if she actually was a progressive, she would reject money from the DFI, DMFI pack. She would say, I don't want that money because it's tainted from an oil mogul who wants me to fight for our planet's destruction. But she's taking that money because she's a useful idiot for the industry. She's a useful idiot for all special interests who fund her campaign. And it's morally reprehensible, but without that money, she doesn't have a career in Congress. And that's all she cares about. She doesn't care about policy. She cares about her career. 
And Nina Turner is the opposite. She rejects money from special interests. And because of that, she's essentially crippling her own campaign. It makes it a lot more difficult to get elected. But by rejecting that money, you send a message to constituents in Ohio 11 that you're not going to be there to play games, to do the bidding of oil moguls and special interests. You're there to fight for the people. Uncorrupted, unbought. That's who you should be voting for. So, I mean, if the people in Ohio's 11th district vote for Chantel Brown, then it's clear that big money won yet again. Because if they see the differences between Chantel Brown and Nina Turner, it's evident that one of them is a bullshitter and one of them actually cares about policy issues. But big money can drown out good messages of good candidates like Nina Turner. So, you know, it's evident that they're spending this money because they feel as if they have to. But still, the fact that they're doing this goes to show you that Nina Turner is a threat. And that's all the more reason why you should support her. So if you can chip in a buck or two or support Nina Turner by phone banking for her or canvassing for her, definitely do that because she's someone who actually cares about policy issues and not just her own career. You saw in the clip there, um, if you want to optimize and take it uh, to another level, expose yourself to red light therapy. Yes. Um, and the juve um, that we were using in the documentary, there's a massive amount Which of it. Which is testicle tanning. It's testicle tanning, but it's also full body uh, red light therapy, uh -huh. which has massive amount of benefits. And there's so much data out there um, that isn't being picked up on or covered. So obviously half the viewers right now are like, what? That's testicle tanning? That's crazy. But my view is, okay, testosterone levels crash and nobody says anything about it. That's crazy. So why is it crazy to seek solutions? It's not crazy to seek solutions. And I think um, I was recently exposed to a term called bromeopathy. And I think there's a lot of people out there right now that um, are, don't trust the mainstream information and they're take taking their own research into their own hands. We already know what you're going to say. Um, yeah, that was a segment on mainstream media, a news network telling you to tan your balls. I don't know how to even process that, but I feel like even if you don't know anything about human biology, you should just have at least the bare minimum amount of common sense to instinctively think that's a little bit sus, sounds a bit sketch. Um, so this, by the way, is the only picture that I could find of Tucker Carlson uh, tanning his balls. Uh, but it's a uh, bromeopathy. Now, I love that they're calling it bromeopathy because homeopathy is fake and dumb. It's pseudoscientific. So I would call this bromeopathy in response to seeing that segment. But he did that for us, a name that we would call it to make fun of it and mock it. He's saying, oh, no, this is like bromeopathy. Okay, this, in my opinion, is like goop for men. I, I just, I feel like, what is happening? <laughs> like, this is a national news network, and, and this isn't substantive. This is probably the, the least harmful segment that Tucker Carlson has done on his program in a while. But still, it's so stupid that the following guest on that program reacted that, to that segment and uh, basically expressed the same sentiment that I'm expressing. Just flabbergasted by the sheer stupidity of Tucker Carlson. Uh, now let's get to a response from a personal trainer who wrote an article for Lifehacker who explains, so how is testicular tanning supposed to benefit you? One hypothesis is that red light 
helps mitochondria produce more ATP and that this helps the Leydig cells in the testicles to produce more testosterone. Another hypothesis centers around vitamin D, which some studies have shown is low in men who also have low testosterone. But there are problems with these ideas. To name one obvious one, vitamin D isn't produced specifically in scrotal skin. You can increase yours by sunning any body part you choose or simply by eating more food that contains vitamin D, such as fatty fish. And when it comes to the effects of red light on mitochondria, this may be true in skin cells. The testicles are internal organs and light doesn't penetrate skin by more than a few millimeters tops. There are light therapy treatments that work on the skin, but there's not really a plausible way for your testes to increase their production of testosterone just because there's light shining on the skin of the scrotum. Yeah, now that was a more thoughtful response, but others chimed in and they basically put it more bluntly. This is a fucking stupid idea for obvious reasons. Testicles need to be four degrees cooler than the body's temperature to make healthy sperm. Heating them up makes absolutely no sense. This person says there's a reason testicles are outside the body, yet Tucker Carlson wants his alpha males to heat those babies up. Yeah, again, I feel like you don't have to know anything about how your body works or even how your own testicles work to hear that and think mm, doesn't really sound like a good idea. But if you can see that dumb conversation take place and Tucker doesn't push back, in fact, he embraces the uh, romeopathy, then if he's this wrong about that, then perhaps you can put two and two together and deduce that maybe he's wrong about other things as well. Now, that segment was so stupid that Tucker's next guest, as I alluded to earlier, Kid Rock, reacted by basically mocking what happened. And even though Tucker Carlson tries to play along, he actually seriously tries to sell this idea to Kid Rock. But Kid Rock, as stupid as he is, wasn't having it. Ladies and gentlemen, so, so our, dude, our cameraman, dude, I, I think Tom Fox is in your house right now. He is. Dude, stop. Testicle tanning. Come on. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. I haven't heard anything open, that good open in a long your, time. Open I'm your starting, mind, Bobby. I'm, I'm, I'm starting a punk rock band, and it's called Testicle Tanning. That's the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll be massively successful. But, I mean, don't you think at this point, when so many of the therapies, the paths they've told us to take, have turned out to be dead ends that have really hurt people, why wouldn't open-minded people seek new solutions. I, I don't know what the hell is going on in this world. I'm not even sure if I understood that question, but some days I just want to stop this planet and let me off. Like, Yeah, that really, uh, that says it all. Kid Rock saying, testicle tanning, come on, right? <laughs> I feel like it, it's on its face so absurd that you don't really have to even respond thoughtfully. Like, people shouldn't have to write articles explaining why this isn't really the best idea, but here we are. You know, I'd say probably, like, at least in the short term, this is less harmful than the anti-vax misinformation that Tucker Carlson promotes, but still not, not really a good idea. But Tucker Carlson said, why wouldn't open-minded people seek new solutions? First and foremost, the idea that conservatives like himself are open-minded is just hilarious because you're not open-minded you're the most closed-minded people in the country and seeking new solutions is something that everyone supports especially when it comes to the medical community uh and, and scientific research and data but i want the experts to do it and not some dude on television who's promoting romeopathy to seek the new solutions the new solutions should be ones that are backed by evidence 
and data, not ones that you pull out of your ass. I mean, I could say, you know, if you want to increase your testosterone, then what you should do is take a really big book and close it on your nuts. And that's going to increase your testosterone level. It's a new solution, possibly. It's a hypothesis. Does that mean it's a good one? No, not necessarily. And if you have common sense, you should think, wow, maybe closing a book on my nuts might actually not be the best way to promote increasing testosterone. I, I just feel like you have to have a bare minimum level of common sense in this world to survive. And most reasonable people will see that and think that sounds stupid. And if you don't, then perhaps, you know, it's evident why you get duped by people like Tucker Carlson in the first place, right? So, I mean, if Kid Rock acknowledges that a Tucker Carlson segment is very stupid, um, if you're dumber than Kid Rock here, maybe you should, uh, I don't know, reevaluate your life, pick up brain training games on the Nintendo Switch or something. I'm not really sure, but if Kid Rock sees it and you don't, then I feel like you should feel bad, unironically. Like, I don't want you to feel bad, but you probably should think, wow, uh, I need to educate myself on just things, more generally speaking, but I'll leave that there. Uh, don't tan your balls, fellas. Don't do it. It's only April, but already there's been hundreds of anti-LGBTQ plus bills introduced at state legislatures across the country, and most of them are anti-trans bills pertaining to banning school-aged children from participating in sports. We're talking middle school and high school age. Uh, but Kentucky is one of the states to enact a ban. Their governor, who is a Democrat, he vetoed this ban, but they overrode his veto. And I, I really think that Kentucky serves as an important example that demonstrates just how absurd these bans are. But first, let's get to the details here. This is according to Nico Lang of Extra Magazine, who writes, Kentucky lawmakers forced a trans sports ban through its legislature this week, despite the fact that there's only one known trans student athlete in the whole state. On April 13th, Kentucky state legislatures overrode an April 7th veto from Governor Andy Bashar, striking down a bill preventing trans girls from competing on middle and high school sports teams that align with their gender identity. In a statement, the Democratic governor said Senate Bill 8-3 most likely violates the equal protection rights afforded by the United States Constitution because it discriminates against transgender children seeking to participate in girls' or women's sports. Transgender children deserve public officials' efforts to demonstrate that they are valued members of our communities through compassion, kindness, and empathy even if not understanding, he wrote last week. But despite Bashir's veto, Republicans bypassed his objections with the simple majority of both houses of the legislature. The GOP controls a supermajority in both the Kentucky House and Senate, and the veto override passed easily in both 72 to 23 and 29 to 8, respectively. Supporters of SB 83 claim the legislation is about preserving the integrity of women's sports, which they claim is threatened by trans inclusion. So the way that these Republicans protect women's sports is enacting a statewide ban that would apply to just one child. Literally, there's one trans student in school sports throughout the whole state. So they actually comically believe that they're protecting sports. But that's not really what they believe. We all know that they don't care about school sports. They don't care about girls sports. This is about hate. This is about them otherizing trans people, making them second-class citizens, and even making children who are trans feel like shit. 
Now, ironically, they claim that they want to support women's sports or save women's sports, but this particular sport quite literally would not exist without the trans child who they just banned. Chris Hartman, executive director of the Fairness Campaign, says the only trans student athlete he is currently aware of is 12-year-old Fisher Wells, a middle school field hockey player. He worries that bills targeting trans youth create isolation and will prevent other students from feeling safe and comfortable being themselves. Wells, a student at Westport Middle School, testified against SBA3 before the Senate Education Committee in February. She helped kickstart the field hockey team at her Louisville school after there was no option for girls to play, but as a result of the transports ban, she will no longer be able to compete alongside her teammates. Now I'm going to play a video of her testimony where she explains how difficult it was to start this team in the first place because there was so little interest. But her and her friends, they created the sport and now um, she's banned because Republicans are terrible people who are just unnecessarily cruel. Like you're not protecting women's sports, obviously, but you see how cruel this is when you hear from this little girl herself. Let's watch. I'm Fisher Wells, and I would like to tell you my experience um, on the Westport girls field hockey team. Before, um, well, after COVID and we were just getting back in, the girls field hockey team barely existed. It was just a thing that Westport had that nobody joined because everybody wanted to play like volleyball or something. Um, but then uh, three people signed up. Uh, one of them was me, and I tried my very hardest to get the minimum amount of people for the team, and we got that. And on our first game, I got news that I couldn't play, and so I didn't play. I sat at home, um, watching television. Um, and then I got so many texts from my friends supporting me, and then, yeah, I got these wonderful pictures. We tied on that game. Barely, by the way, which was fun. Um, but later it was resolved, and then I started to find out how disgusting the reason I couldn't play was. And I have made a ton of very nice friends on this team, and we've had a fun time. Um, in one game, the ball rolled up one of my teammates' skirts. Her face described it all. <laughs> it was very funny. Um, and I just have made so many friends, and me and my friends have started playing on a league at the YMCA, and that has been extremely fun. We even won our second game. Um, we've lost a lot of games. But that was because we were mostly new to the sport, and we were all getting invested in this really awesome sport that is just really fun. Uh, it taught us how to be sportsmanlike and very calm about things. I really don't want this bill to pass because that means I can't play and it will be extremely detrimental to my mental health as well um, because I know that sports is a great way for me to cope with things like it's just a good way for me to cope with things. Um, and it's why I recovered so very quickly from not being able to play because later, like a few days later, I found out I could play. And I was able to play and have fun and like every, like my coach was crying. Like she was like, oh my God, Fisher. Um, I just, 
it's disgusting that this bill is even suggested. It's terrible, and I've worked really hard and practiced so many hours. Um, I hope you don't vote on this bill, and I hope I can play in eighth grade. Thank you. Thank you for your testimony. I'm so sorry, little girl, but we have to protect this sports team that you helped create by banning you from it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just so ridiculous. And for all this talk of protecting children that we've heard from the GOP and their propagandists, does this bill make children any safer? I don't think that this one trans child is going to feel any safer. I don't think her friends are going to feel safer. In fact, her friends want to play with her. But you say, no, you hear her with your own ears testify saying this helps me cope this helps me with mental health and still knowing this applies to one child choose to not just pass the spill but override the governor's veto in other states like in arkansas anti-trans governors they have realized okay maybe these sports bans go too far because there's not really any high school athletes who are trans i mean we have like 12 trans kids that we know of throughout the state and i don't know if any of them are playing sports so this seems a little bit ridiculous so even transphobes sometimes will recognize how ridiculous this is but the kentucky legislature overwhelmingly said yeah we have to ban this one kid from playing hockey because we're protecting women's sports and for all this talk of protecting women's sports how many of these uh, lawmakers helped create sports teams for women? Like helped facilitate the creation of entire uh, of an entire new category of a sport at a particular middle school or high school? Have they have they done that? This little girl has done more for female sports than anyone in that legislature. But they banned her from participating. When this law takes effect in July, she won't be able to play in the sport that she helped create. How ridiculous is this? How ridiculous is this? So, I mean, I don't know what to say. When it comes to middle school and high school sports, this is quite literally just about socialization. I mean, these kids are playing sports and they probably don't even understand the sports half the time, right? When I was in elementary school, like I played sports, uh, you know, in, in PE and whatnot, but I wasn't very athletic. I didn't know you know, the rules and stuff. It's about socialization. It's about hanging out with your friends and having fun. And it's apparent that this helped her. But because these bigots, these disgusting, vile transphobes uh, want to win an election, they're using this one trans child as uh, red meat to throw to the base. Throwing this one 12-year-old under the bus. I mean, for a lot of trans kids, really middle school and high school to them more so than anything is about existence right just existing and surviving these cruel times when children are usually cruel but you know you know sometimes trans kids they end up enjoying sports and that's really good we should applaud them right we should be happy and celebrate the fact that this girl has confidence and you know she has loving parents who encourage her to do what she wants pursue her interests but you know because of this nationwide effort to, bans, to ban uh, high schoolers from sports? How many trans kids who wanted to participate in school sports with their friends will now feel as if they don't want to do that because of this bigoted push, because they might become targets as Fisher Wells is? It, it's just, it's gross. 
So I don't want to hear anything about protecting children from the GOP or anyone who votes for the GOP, because it's very clear that you don't just not care about protecting children, but the policies that you support are actively harming children. This is proof of that. Over the course of the last month or so, Fox News has been running wall-to-wall -wall coverage, basically suggesting that the LGBTQ plus community is a bunch of groomers, they're predators, they want to prey on your children. But little did Fox News know that they have a predator in their midst who is unrepented and admitted this on television and laughed about being a predator. Take a look. When I was trying to get Emma to date me, yeah. <laughs> uh, first thing I did, I uh, let the air out of her tires. <laughs> She couldn't go anywhere. She needed a lift. I said, hey, you need a lift? She copped right does in the car. Does she know this story? No, she doesn't know this story. <laughs> does she watch the show? Jesse Jr. does. You're yeah. basically the Zodiac Killer. <laughs> <laughs> it has a happy ending. Really? Yes, oh, we're married. Oh, did you really do that? Is that the not. first time you did it, or did you use that before? Uh, it works like a charm. Oh, okay. <laughs> Kathy Lee Gifford joins us. You can tell that Judge Janine Pirro was genuinely uncomfortable right there. And I don't blame her because as ghoulish and cringeworthy as she can be, she's at least self-aware enough to know that that right there is not okay. And his wife didn't even know that he did this. So he kept this from her for years, potentially, however long they've been married. And he thinks that this is okay. It's okay because uh, there's a happy ending. They got married. Okay, well, if you abduct someone and you keep them as a captive for years against their will, but eventually they warm up to you and they begin to like you and you eventually get married, do you call that a happy ending? Because I would call that Stockholm Syndrome. This is not okay. This is absolutely the definition of predatory behavior. It's manipulative and he laughs it off and basically implies that he's done this multiple times with other women. Imagine if um, this was a gay man who was admitting this. Yeah, I let the air out of this guy's tires who I thought was cute. Fox News would run wall-to-wall -wall coverage about how this is evidence that all gay men are predators. But on the network that's supposedly anti-predator, you have one of your own hosts talking about how he let the air out of the tires of one of your employees, one of his colleagues, in order to lure her into his vehicle. That is insanely creepy. Insanely creepy. And to make matters worse, as this Daily Mail headline points out, Fox News host Jesse Waters, 41, shares photo from his wedding to former producer, 27, he had an affair with while married to his first wife. So while he was preying on this coworker of his, he was still married. So that adds to how trifling he is as a human being, how deceitful he is as a human being. Now, perhaps, you know, if you're an older person who watches Fox News religiously, you think, oh, well, this is fine. That's normal. I'd do something like that. That's not normal, first and foremost. That's incredibly wrong and creepy on so many levels. So many levels. If I were his wife, I don't know that I would be able to view the relationship the same way because it was started by him preying on her. But nonetheless, if you think that's okay, still acknowledge the fact that he didn't fess up to his wife all this time. So at a minimum, he's deceitful and he's admitting that. And this is supposed to be a serious news person who delivers the news to you. If he lies about that, something so intimate, of course, he has an easy time lying about other things. So perhaps you should think, wow, maybe he's lying about 
the news that he talks about. Maybe the way that he, you know, uh, talks about these news stories that I listen to. Maybe he's manipulative there as well. Maybe he's not telling us all of the details. Isn't this a violation of trust, not just for his wife, but to the viewers as well, to basically admit that he's a liar? I mean, I don't think the viewers will care when Fox News uh, or, or when um, Tucker Carlson went on Dave Rubin's show and admitted that he lies. Um, I don't think they cared at all. Yeah, sure. It's fine. Somebody who's a serious news person lying to me, perfectly fine. I still trust them. Okay, I don't know how to even react to that. You should not trust them if they are a proven liar, but still, you know, here we are. Now, as Ari Drennan points out, these are the people who lie and tell your parents and grandparents every day that LGBTQ people are predators. And that really, to me, is what makes this story that much more ridiculous. He didn't even have the decency to wait until Fox News ended their hate campaign against LGBTQ plus people. Just in the middle of their hate campaign he's like yeah I'm, I'm actually i think predators are bad uh except when i do it then it's it perfectly you know it, it's acceptable if i do it i mean wow wow and to laugh it off and say it works like a charm unreal so i mean fox news if they're really against predators you would think that they would fire jesse waters immediately especially considering the way that he preyed on one of their employees at the time I mean, is he going to do this again? Is he going to prey on a new co-worker while he's married to his current wife? That's what he did before. I just, I don't know what to say. What if they choose to not get in your car or they reject your advances? We don't know the extent of his predatory behavior and how far this can go. Is he actually a danger? It seems like he is to his colleagues. But the anti-predator network is, uh, I guess, protecting and harboring a predator and they're okay with that. Yeah, so unless Fox News fires Jesse Waters, then you have to not take anything they say about predators seriously because they're okay with predators if they keep someone there who admits that he preyed on one of their coworkers or one of their employees, one of his coworkers. Just so vile, so gross on so many levels. And if I were his wife, I would definitely rethink this relationship given how that's the way it got started and he thinks it's funny and he never told you unreal so this might be unprecedented i uh, don't know if this has ever happened in the history of the humanist report show before but chuck todd said something and i agreed with it feels wrong to admit that but he said something that i think is objectively true that for some reason even though this is obvious other pundits haven't pointed out yet and this is necessary because the white house is going to listen to mainstream media they're not going to listen to some dude with tattoos on youtube explain why he needs to fight harder but perhaps listening to mainstream media will at least let them know the way that what he's doing or not doing more specifically looks to the public let's watch if you got on a plane or a train or really any form of public transportation today, you probably noticed a pretty big change. Yesterday afternoon, a Trump-appointed federal judge in Florida struck down the administration's federal mask mandate for travelers just days after the Center for Disease Control extended it through early May. The White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki called the ruling disappointing, but the White House has not yet appealed the ruling. They claim it's something for the Department of Justice to look into. Already the TSA, major airline carriers, Amtrak, Uber, Lyft, all others have dropped their mask requirements, essentially the second the, uh, the White House decided not to appeal. 
Folks, it's one thing for a Trump judge to strike down an order from the Biden White House, but it's an entirely different thing for the White House to let it happen without any legal pushback. And it's not the first time recently that something hasn't gone the White House's way. They don't fight back. They don't defend their rationale. They just give you the, um, the emoji shrug. We saw it when the Supreme Court struck down their vaccine mandate for large employers. We saw it when West Virginia's Joe Manchin essentially scrapped the president's entire domestic agenda in Congress. We may even be seeing it with the ongoing intra-party fight on Title 42. The Biden administration, with the full power and prestige of the presidency, with its party's power in Congress on the line this November, has repeatedly looked as if they're easy to roll. Chuck Todd is right. Chuck Todd is absolutely right. The Biden administration, with the full power and prestige of the presidency, with his party's power on the line this November, has repeatedly looked as if they're easy to roll. Exactly. Biden's unwillingness to fight for even his own agenda, which is not a revolutionary agenda. This is a pretty incrementalist and milquetoast agenda overall. But even his unwillingness to fight for that, I cannot tell you the damage that that will do politically long term to Democrats, because all the young people who came out to support Biden over Trump, if they can't even see the bare minimum get accomplished with the Democratic presidency, the message that they will take away is, what's the point of voting? What's the point of participating in politics altogether if we can't even do the bare minimum? If basic governance isn't even possible because we have a president who's unwilling to fight. Now, I've seen centrists say that, you know, us progressives, us lefties, we're so stupid and naive because it's a simple numbers thing, right? Look at, look at the makeup of the Senate and the House. It's just Biden doesn't have the votes. So you just have to vote harder next time. Except that's not a very inspiring message, first and foremost. You're not going to get out the vote with that. Second of all, it's just simply not true. I mean, even if that were the case and you definitely didn't have the numbers, that doesn't mean that you just give up and fight. Yeah, we have these issues that need to be addressed, various crises currently, but, you know, we only have a Senate that's split down the middle. Can't do anything. Sorry. No, you fight. As the president, you use your bully pulpit. You can use whatever approach you like. Biden can use the stick or the carrot approach. The problem is that he's done neither. He's done neither. And as Chuck Todd pointed out there, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, though, to be fair, has basically uh, completely ruined his presidency. They've obstructed him from doing even the bare minimum. He couldn't even pass Build Back Better, his signature reforms. And he's just giving up. Where's the push for Build Back Better? We were told that after Build Back Better failed, they'd bring up, you know, these individual pieces of legislation, you know, disaggregate build back better and pass climate alone and and pre-k universal pre-k alone that hasn't happened either because we all know it's going to be an obstacle and joe biden isn't up for the fight look there's a number of things that he can do to put pressure on joe manchin and i don't know that any of these things would be successful but the point is that he tries he could say if you don't play game if you don't support this legislation then we see that your daughter was engaged in price fixing when she worked at the company that produced EpiPen. maybe we look into that maybe we fire your wife who i gave a job or you don't even have to use the stick approach you can say how about this mansion if you support this climate legislation we will include pork in there specifically for west virginia we'll create jobs clean green jobs for west virginians and you could take that back to your constituents and brag about it he's not trying anything you're not trying anything when it comes to voting rights legislation. I mean, 
Manchin and Cinema said no, and that was basically it. Biden said he'd fight, but he didn't fight. And I don't think Democratic Party loyalists and leaders of the party understand how damaging, how demoralizing that is. But you see, I actually, and this is incredibly cynical, so you could disregard this, I think that a lot of Democrats don't want to win. I think that having the majority in Congress, they don't have the Supreme Court, but having a majority in Congress is just too much pressure because any legislation that they pass is bound to offend some of their donors. So it's just easier to be a party where you don't have full control and then you can just fundraise by sending emails to your constituents about how the big mean Republicans won't let you pass anything. And that's just easier because if you pass any sort of climate change mitigation legislation, then your fossil fuel donors might get pissed. If you try to do even a public option, your health industry donors will get pissed at you. So the easiest way to not rock the boat and maintain the status quo is to just have Republicans in control so you can use them as an excuse. But when Republicans are not in control, there's no excuse. The pressure's on you. You're in power. The buck stops with you. So to not even fight at a minimum is just... I can't explain how big of a bloodbath it's going to be for Democrats, and the worst part is that I think that a lot of them, so long as they get to keep their seat, are perfectly comfortable with that outcome. As Derek Thompson of The Atlantic points out, something very interesting and troubling happening with Biden's approval rating among young people, which has collapsed by more than any other age group since January of 2021. Between 18 and 34, he's down negative 19 points. Uh, no college, negative 20 points. Hispanic, negative 20 points. Black, negative 30 points. Now, there's a number of reasons for this. A number of reasons for this. After we saw a historic Black Lives Matter movement after George Floyd was murdered, we even saw protests across the globe. What has been done to prevent this from happening to more Black people? Nothing. Young people strapped with student debt heard Biden say he's going to look out for them. And what happens? Nothing. And I think that this Common Dreams headline really says it all. Progressives say climate inaction, student debt explained Biden's drop in support among young voters. One observer suggested there is a decent amount of young people not all that pleased to see the administration sucking up to fossil fuel executives as the earth rapidly loses its capacities to maintain life. And that's the thing. Right there. I don't think that anyone expected Joe Biden to be Bernie Sanders. But all that young people wanted is the bare minimum. Voting rights so we can maintain our democracy and something with regard to climate change. Just moving us in a positive direction so we can still have a habitable planet. Can't even get that. And, you know, let's, let's say that Biden tried everything. He fought Manchin and Cinema tooth and nail and he did everything in his power to legislatively achieve his agenda. Even if that fails, what do you then do? You pick up your pen, you sign executive orders, you cancel student debt, you do everything in your power to accomplish change because we all know you have a limited amount of time to actually get things done, to move this country in a positive direction as Republicans try to rip it apart. And it just feels like Biden is asleep at the wheel. It seems like he isn't up to the challenge, he isn't taking this seriously, and he just wanted to be president so he can, I don't know, say he was president. It's just, I'm so soured on electoral politics that it feels like 
there's really nothing that we can do at this point, and we're just circling the drain. That's not to say that I'm discouraging anyone from voting, because of course, this is something that everyone should do. I think that voting is important. But in terms of giving people a reason to vote, not all people live in states where it's very easy to vote. In my state of Oregon, I have no reason to not vote. They mail my ballot to me. I can take my time filling it out. But in these states like Georgia, where you know votes are suppressed, where they have limited polling places, where you have to wait in line for hours, people need reasons to get out and vote. And Democrats have demonstrably failed to give them enough reasons. And I just, I don't think that they understand how their inaction, how their ambivalence is fucking us up for so long. I mean, we're about to likely see the end of Roe v. Wade. And what are Democrats going to do to fight that? We see, you know, uh, the Republican Party, the GOP, they are waging an anti-LGBTQ plus hate campaign, introducing hundreds of bills in legislatures across the country that are anti-trans, anti-gay. And Democrats can federally propose something, but they won't. They haven't even gotten the Equality Act passed. And I get it. Yeah, you don't have enough votes. But did I even see the fight? That's the thing. And after all of this failing again and again, we just got news that Biden is reportedly going to run again because this is what he told Obama. So the question is, what are you going to run on even? If you run in 2024, what's going to be the message? Look at all that I accomplished. We gave you, I don't know, a 1400 check after we promised 2000 at the start of my presidency. What are you going to run on? Even when Democrats do good things, they don't brag enough about the good things that they do. So even if he did do something, who knows how good of a campaign he can he can run. He can run. I'm just so sick of having to um choose between evil psychotic republicans and not republicans that's all that democrats are they're not actively pushing back against the damage that republicans are causing this country but i mean here we are we're in this situation where because democrats fail to act they fail to stand up for the groups that get them elected well you know people get demoralized then they stay home republicans win and then when Republicans do more damage and people are reminded of how evil Republicans are and how it's basically a gigantic organized death cult at this point, then they come back out to vote for Democrats only after being reminded of how terrible Republicans are. But then when they're reminded of how weak and uh, unable to govern Democrats are, then they just stay home. Republicans win again. It's this never ending cycle. But as the cycle continues, we as a country continue to circle the drain. It's just, it feels so demoralizing and hopeless. And we just need one leader in the Democratic Party who's able to stand up and change the direction of this party and the country, but actually win. But the problem is the Democratic Party establishment fights against people who are potential change makers. They fought against Bernie Sanders tooth and nail. They're fighting against Nina Turner right now. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know what to say. You know, that they're comfortable. So regardless of the direction of the country, Democratic Party elites, they're wealthy enough to be insulated from the damage that the GOP causes to this country. But I mean, at some point in time, the dam is going to burst and the damage that they cause is going to affect everyone. You can only go so long without addressing climate change until we all die, literally, as a species. 
So I just feel like, you know, if you don't see this at this point, then I don't know what to tell you. But Chuck Todd right there for pointing this out, that Biden is weak. I think that's important because maybe Biden's White House will finally get the message that the way that he looks to everyone is not as some like unifier. Like he, he ran as being a unifier, but you're not just like going to unify the country by rolling over and dying and letting Republicans run roughshod over you, by letting your own party make a fool of you. You're going to bring together the country by passing policies by any way you can that actually change people's lives. It is absolutely true that the GOP has to hyper-focus on culture war issues because they don't have any real policies that would impact the lives of Americans in a material way. So they try to distract you with these wedge issues and culture war issues that actually don't change the day-to-day -day lives of most Americans. And I say most Americans because I feel as if saying that this is just all culture war, it's technically true, but it feels like an oversimplification because it doesn't just impact the culture. What impacts the culture does have an impact on people's lives in a concrete way. So when, you know, the GOP and Fox News, for example, spend weeks over and over again talking about how LGBTQ plus people are predators and groomers, sure, that's a culture war issue, it's a distraction, but it's more than just, oh, we think gay people are icky again as a society because Republicans are telling me what to think. No, it actually affects people's lives in a very, very direct way for the worse. Case in point, Robbie Pierce, a parent, took to Twitter to explain what happened to him following Fox News' hate campaign. Well, that didn't take long. We decided to take a trip on Amtrak with the kids for spring break. Nine hours into a pleasant ride, a man was suddenly standing next to me, shouting across me at my six-year-old son. Remember what I told you, they stole you, they're pedophiles. I stood between the stranger and my son, whose life has already been so hard, who carries traumas larger than his whole small fierce frame. I was immovable, get away from my family. Family, that's not a family. You're rapists. You steal black and Asian kids. My son and five-year-old daughter were both now openly crying, petrified. He yelled right at them, unmoved. These guys aren't natural. Homosexuals are an abomination. They steal and rape kids. It was suddenly no longer an absurd, abstract attack in an online comment section or a distant legislative session. These horrors were being screamed at my sweet, bewildered son, who's worked so hard to process his grief and control his feelings, who only wants love and safety. I grabbed the kids and moved them to another car, while my ferocious husband went into Papa Bear mode and shouted the man away from us. Eventually, the conductor arrived and the man lost his focus on us. Now let's just pause right there for a moment. So this man is accosting this family, minding their own business because he was riled up by Fox News. Riled up by uh, basically nonstop coverage uh, with messaging like this. Grooming. Groomer. Grooming. Groom. Groomers. Groomer in chief. Grooming. Groomer. Groomer. Grooming. Groomers. Grooming. Groomers. Groomer. Grooming. Grooming. Groomer. Grooming. Grooming. Groomers. Grooming. 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 Groomer. Groomer. Grooming. Groom. Groomers. Grooming. Groomers. Groomer. Grooming. Groomed. Groomers. Groomed. Grooming. Grooming. Groomer. Grooming. Groomer. Groomer. Grooming. Grooming. Groom. Grooming. 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 Groomers. Grooming. Grooming. Groomer. Groomer. 
groomers. Groom. Grooming. Grooming. Groomers. Groomers. Grooming. Grooming. Groom. Grooming. Groomer. Groomed. Groomed. Grooming. Grooming. Groomers. Grooming. Groomer. Groomers. Groomers. Groom. Groomers. Groom. Grooming. Groom. Grooming. Grooming. Groom. Pro pedophile media fully backs this pro grooming position. Yeah. So is this culture war stuff? Sure. But what happens in the culture? has a real concrete impact on the lives of people. And Robbie Pierce acknowledged that. He went on to say, we all know where that comes from. So thanks to Fox and Murdoch, JK Rowling and Marjorie Taylor Greene, to the senators and priests and everyone else who harms kids and thinks it's politically expedient to project onto gentle families like mine to stir up their lucrative culture war. I asked my son if he'd seen the man before. He said the man had confronted him when we let him go to the bathroom alone, which he'd been so proud to do at first, but two afraid to do again after. Yet, we're the groomers. I'm livid and ashamed that I didn't notice something was up. Yeah, so Robbie acknowledges that all of the hate that Fox News has been spewing, it's not just happening in a vacuum. It's not just Fox News is re-changing people to think in a homophobic way and getting them to accept the gay predator myth after, you know, the LGBTQ plus community has fought tooth and nail to fight that stigma. This has real-world consequences. And um, to be very clear, it's not like all of a sudden gay families are being accosted because of Fox News. This was a thing that had always happened, but it's just going to get worse because of the culture war. Matt Levides gives us some more context in an NBC News article. Pierce and Broverman said this was not the first time their family has had hate directed at them in public. They said that sometimes strangers will taunt them with the F word and other homophobic slurs. Broverman also recalled an episode where a driver rolled down his window and asked the pair's children, did they kidnap you? But Pierce and Broverman described this latest incident as more aggressive and egregious than past instances, adding that it was the first time a verbal attack came laced with talking points from right-wing media and legislators. As soon as he started saying pedophiles and things like that, I thought he just seemed like he came preloaded with these statements, Pierce said. So I thought, oh, okay, we're dealing with someone who's consuming right-wing media. So this specifically is why people like myself push back so hard whenever we see this anti-LGBTQ plus rhetoric. Whenever we hear people talk about how trans women are predators, this is why we push back so hard because that conversation has real-world implications. There's a reason why trans women are the targets of murder. There's a reason why gay people are harassed, gay families are harassed. It's because of the culture war. It's a culture for a lot of Americans, but for gay people, for trans people, this is real life. It's not just culture. This is real life. This affects people in a real concrete way. And if you have somebody in your life who's LGBTQ and you watch Fox News or you vote for these politicians who play into the culture war, you are doing demonstrable harm to somebody who you should be aligned with, who you should be fighting for. I mean, I can't tell you how many of my own friends and family members, uh, they claim to support me and my husband and be pro LGBTQ plus, but then the first chance they get, they vote Republican. Oh, thank you. Thank you for voting for a politician who not only riles people up to hate against me, but also support laws that take away my rights. That makes me a second class citizen. Thank you so much for being an ally. What a great ally you are. No, 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 no. See, 
my thing is that if you don't support me unequivocally, if you don't reject these politicians and actively fight against this hateful rhetoric, then you're not an ally. And I don't want you in my life. Like, it shouldn't be the case that in 2022, trans women have to walk around wondering if they're going to be assaulted by some transphobe. It shouldn't be the case that if you're a gay couple and you forget and you're a little bit like too intimate, if you place your hand on your husband's shoulder while you're at the grocery store, you shouldn't have to be worried. Oh my God, did somebody see? Am I going to get a baseball bat to the head? I mean, it, I've been with my husband now for almost 12 years and we've never held hands in public because I don't know if it's a safe environment. Sure, you know, if you live in a more liberal area, that's all peachy keen. Uh, but there's always just one person that might say something or might do something. So it's best to not rile anyone up, not draw attention to yourself. But with families like this, if you have kids and you're a gay couple, it's kind of obvious, right? You can't really hide it that much. But the point is that we shouldn't have to hide it. And all of these so-called culture war issues are going to force gay people back into the closet. These politicians might not actually think that gay people are predators or groomers, but the audiences that they're speaking to, the constituents that they're playing to and pandering to, they actually do believe this bullshit. And these culture war issues make life hell. It's not just culture war. It's, it's, it's real life. So, you know, uh, this is... The result, and I wouldn't be surprised if more gay families are accosted like this. Probably many are and just don't speak up because they don't want to draw attention to themselves. I'm sure that Robbie, just by mentioning this, is the target of right-wingers who are pointing him, him out, saying, hey, this person who accosted them is actually a, a brave truth-teller who's looking out for children. It, it's just, it, it's truly gross. And um, as a gay person, I can't not hate anyone who has contributed to this hate campaign or supports either directly or indirectly any politician or propagandist who's contributing to this hate campaign. Fuck you if you support this. So a couple of weeks ago on the show, I talked about how multiple congressional Democrats have stated that they have no plan on responding to the GOP's anti-LGBTQ plus hate campaign. Because why respond when nobody takes them seriously? I mean, when Marjorie Taylor Greene calls LGBTQ plus people groomers, people just look at that and laugh. And even members of Democratic Party leadership like Hakeem Jeffries have vocalized this position. And I explained why that's very clearly a bad idea. And apparently a Michigan state lawmaker named Mallory McMorrow agrees with me because this is how she responded when one of her GOP colleagues called her a groomer. Take a look. I didn't expect to wake up yesterday to the news that the senator from the 22nd district had overnight accused me by name of grooming and sexualizing children in an email fundraising for herself. So I sat on it for a while wondering why me? And then I realized because I am the biggest threat to your hollow, hateful scheme. Because you can't claim that you are targeting marginalized kids in the name of, quote, parental rights if another parent is standing up to say no. So then what? Then you dehumanize and marginalize me. You say that I'm one of them. You say she's a groomer. She supports pedophilia. She wants children to believe that they were responsible for slavery and to feel bad about themselves because they're white. Well, here's a little bit of background about who I really am. Growing up, my family was very active in our church. I sang in the choir. My mom taught CCD. 
One day, our priest called a meeting with my mom and told her that she was not living up to the church's expectations and that she was disappointing. My mom asked why. Among other reasons, she was told it was because she was divorced and because the priest didn't see her at mass every Sunday. So where was my mom on Sundays? She was at the soup kitchen with me. My mom taught me at a very young age that Christianity and faith was about being part of a community, about recognizing our privilege and blessings and doing what we can to be of service to others, especially people who are marginalized, targeted, and who had less often unfairly. I learned that service was far more important than performative nonsense like being seen in the same pew every Sunday or writing Christian in your Twitter bio and using that as a shield to target and marginalize already marginalized people. I also stand on the shoulders of people like Father Ted Hesburgh, the longtime president of the University of Notre Dame, who was active in the civil rights movement, who recognized his power and privilege as a white man, a faith leader, and the head of an influential and well-respected institution and who saw black people in this country being targeted and discriminated against and beaten and reached out to lock arms with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he was alive, when it was unpopular and risky and marching alongside them to say, we've got you to offer protection and service and allyship to try to right the wrongs and fix injustice in the world. So who am I? I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom who knows that the very notion that learning about slavery or redlining or systemic racism somehow means that children are being taught to feel bad or hate themselves because they are white is absolute nonsense. No child alive today is responsible for slavery. No one in this room is responsible for slavery. But each and every single one of us bears responsibility for writing the next chapter of history. Each and every single one of us decides what happens next and how we respond to history and the world around us. We are not responsible for the past. We also cannot change the past. We can't pretend that it didn't happen or deny people their very right to exist. I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom. I want my daughter to know that she is loved, supported, and seen for whoever she becomes. I want her to be curious, empathetic, and kind. People who are different are not the reason that our roads are in bad shape after decades of disinvestment, or that healthcare costs are too high, or that teachers are leaving the profession. I want every child in this state to feel seen, heard, and supported, not marginalized and targeted because they are not straight, white, and Christian. We cannot let hateful people tell you otherwise to scapegoat and deflect from the fact that they are not doing anything to fix the real issues that impact people's lives. And I know that hate will only win if people like me stand by and let it happen. So I want to be very clear right now. Call me whatever you want. I hope you brought in a few dollars. I hope it made you sleep good last night. I know who I am. I know what faith and service means and what it calls for in this moment. We will not let hate win. That right there is what being a good ally looks like. Not just passively supporting the rights of marginalized people, but actually standing up and defending them, vocalizing your intent to defend them perpetually. That's what allyship is and supposed to be.
Now, there's a couple of lines from that speech that stood out to me that I wanted to highlight. She said, people who are different are not the reason why our roads are in bad shape or our healthcare costs are too high or that teachers are leaving the profession. That is exactly right. It's obvious at this point that the GOP continues these culture war issues because that's the one thing that they use to draw in voters. They prey on people's reactionary instincts. They get people to vote based on hate and not based on economic policies. And that's how they continuously win. So to not address that is just to surrender to them. She also said, hate will only win if people like me stand by and let it happen. And she is exactly right. Marginalized minorities, they're minorities. So you need others to stand up in order to win in a democratic society. You need others to speak out on their behalf saying, I will stand shoulder to shoulder with everyone who's marginalized and I will fight for them. I will not let you scare me into being silent. I will not quietly support LGBTQ plus rights. I will be vocal and be an ally to them and push back against these disgusting smears that the GOP continues to wage against them. And as Brian Butler put it, don't dodge the culture wars, win them. And here's why that's right. The culture wars is the only thing that the GOP has. Once you win the culture war, you win the political war as well. Because if the GOP actually has to talk about economic issues and what they do or wouldn't do to fix healthcare, which is nothing, by the way, then what voter is going to find what they say reasonable? The main way the GOP continues to cultivate support election cycle after election cycle is by preying on hate. Their strategy is evident and they just switch it up by changing the target. One year, it's immigrants. The next year, it's black and brown people. The next year, it's LGBTQ plus people. But the strategy remains the same. And so Democrats who refuse to fight them, the Democrats who back down like Hakeem Jeffries and Tim Ryan, they are cowards. They are cowards. And you are surrendering. You're waving the white flag. But the problem is that a lot of Democrats, they're spineless and they say, well, look, it's easy for you to say that. It's easy for people like AOC in super blue districts to stand up and be accused of you know being too woke but in my purple district i can't do that except mallory addressed that she explained why it is absolutely still a losing and spineless strategy if you back down in spite of the fact that you may exist in a red district and perhaps if you speak out on behalf of trans people you might be called woke here's why she says that's a bad strategy uh so i flipped a district when i ran for the first time in 2018 so i represent what was a republican district i'm a democrat and it is this exact tone that the people I represent, I represent Mitt Romney's hometown, uh, want balanced budgets and want the government to work and want us to attract and, and support businesses and don't want to hate people because they are different. And there was an opportunity for the Republican Party to go back to debating, you know, how we spend tax dollars, but instead it is full fringe QAnon, hateful, hateful rhetoric with no actual policy. So, you know, I see it every day. But part of the reason that I really wanted to identify myself is because this moment is going to require straight white Christian suburban moms to stand up and get uncomfortable and say this is not okay because odds are you know a lot of us are probably pretty comfortable and okay but that doesn't mean that this is okay and we can't stand back and let it happen she's exactly right to not push back is to give them an automatic win and i love mallory she has something that i don't think many democrats have 
and that's balls. She's actually fighting against the GOP. I don't know why, whenever the GOP starts screaming about cancel culture or woke, Democrats and liberals in general, they just instinctively retreat and they buckle. No, I'm not woke. I promise you, I'm not woke. I mean, do you really care what these reactionary dipshits think? Defeat them, fight them, and win. Don't just retreat. Don't be cowards. I wish that Democrats in Congress understood what Mallory was saying here. There's things that they can do to fight the GOP. They can introduce legislation to counter the nearly 250 different anti-LGBTQ plus bills proposed in state legislatures across the country, which disproportionately target trans people. I mean, they could pass the Equality Act, but they couldn't even get that done. But I mean, at the bare minimum, pushing back rhetorically is the least consequential thing that you can do. But we don't really even see Democrats do that. I mean, how many elected Democrats have you seen respond to these claims of grooming? I mean, the GOP is literally reviving the gay predator myth, and they're saying that LGBTQ plus representation is grooming, and the Democrats at the national level are silent. I, I don't know if they're not paying attention. I don't know if they're hearing this talk and they think, ooh, I don't want to wait into that conversation because I don't want to be deemed too woke. But I mean, as Mallory said, you have to be uncomfortable. Make yourself uncomfortable because that's what being a good ally is. Sure, currently, if you stand up for trans people or LGBTQ plus people or other marginalized groups, it may be the case that currently you feel uncomfortable and you're ostracized. But this cost that you're paying now is more of an investment. It's a down payment to a better future that you can say you helped build when society inevitably progresses in the correct direction. So don't be a coward, Democrats. Be like Mallory, okay? If you're worried that one of these right-wing freaks will call you woke because you stand up for LGBTQ plus people or other marginalized groups, then wear that like a badge of honor. You say in response, okay, well, if standing up for trans rights makes me woke, then damn fucking right I'm woke. If me standing up for disadvantaged people means that these fuckface fundies see me as a cancel culture degenerate snowflake, then boo fucking who, I'll cry myself to sleep knowing that these right-wing freaks think poorly of me. Oh no. Democrats lose when they retreat. Democrats lose when they don't fight. And they've retreated from how many battles at this point? So it's time to stand up, stop being cowards, and actually lead by example, like Mallory is doing. But odds are people nationally elected to Congress, Democrats, they don't really think about the bigger picture. Picture. They just think about what's going to get me from election A to election B. What's going to help me win? And if anyone perceives me to be a little bit too woke, then maybe, you know, uh, my voters won't like me. Why did you run in the first place? Take a fucking stand and stop being weak. So I absolutely applaud Mallory for doing what Democrats should be doing. Sometimes all it takes is one person to stand up and be bold. And I hope that what she does has a domino effect. Well, we got some news that was, um, I guess you could say, unexpected. Uh, Bernie Sanders, after previously definitely saying he's not going to run for president again, is reportedly not ruling out a run in 2024, assuming Biden does not seek a second term.
So as Sean Sullivan of The Washington Post explains, Senator Bernie Sanders is open to running for president in 2024 if President Biden declines to seek re-election, according to a campaign memo a top political advisor distributed to allies on Wednesday that was shared with The Washington Post. In the event of an open 2024 Democratic presidential primary, Senator Sanders has not ruled out another run for president, so we advise that you answer any questions about 2024 with that in mind, says the memo from Fah Shakur, a close Sanders advisor who was his campaign manager when he ran in 2020. The memo was shared by a person with direct knowledge of his contents on the condition of anonymity because it was not released publicly and confirmed by a second person with direct knowledge of the contents. Shakir did not immediately respond to a request for comment. While it's frustrating this private memo leaked to the media, the central fact remains true, which is that Senator Sanders is the most popular office holder in the country, said Sanders spokesman Mike Casca when asked for comment. Casca and the memo based that assertion on a recent poll. So my understanding is this is a memo that they send out, a questionnaire rather, that they send out to candidates who are potential uh, endorsement prospects. And one of the questions is, well, if we endorse you, would you, you endorse us in the event Bernie runs in 2024? Now, of course, there's a huge caveat here. This will all hinge on what Biden chooses to do. If he chooses to run in 2024, then the nomination is his. I mean, you can technically wage a campaign, a primary campaign against a sitting president, but primary campaigns against incumbent presidents are very, very difficult to pull off. Um, and it's almost a waste of time. I mean, in theory, I think that every single sitting president should face a fierce primary. They shouldn't just automatically have the nomination of their party again. But the reality is that it would be difficult to pull off. So if Biden says, I'm running again, then that will basically close the door to Bernie 2024. But it's not a foregone conclusion that Biden will, in fact, run again. Now, there are reports suggesting that he's telling allies he fully intends on running. But 2024 is still a couple of years away, and a lot can change between now and then. So uh, before I talk about whether or not I think this is a good idea for Bernie Sanders to run again, let me just say, in the event Biden were to run again, what specifically would he run on? I mean, in 2022, they're grasping at things to boast about. I mean, the good things that they were previously bragging about, which were objectively good, the child tax credit, uh, the $1,400 checks, which were supposed to be $2,000, but were helpful nonetheless. Those are things that have come and gone. The child tax credit expired. So what exactly are you going to pitch to voters? Why should they come out and vote for you? How are you going to galvanize young people? And the answer is, I don't think he can. I mean, Biden has proven that the centrist way, the third way, has failed. Now, the thought, I'm assuming from the Democratic Party, was that, look, we have to be more moderate because that's how we win. Because if we're too liberal, if we're too woke, to socialist, then the Republican Party is going to attack us and call us communist. Now, Biden in no way, shape or form has governed as a lefty. But what are Republicans calling him? A communist and predictably so. So this whole strategy of trying to appeal to Republicans, trying to build bridges and extend olive branches to your political opposition, it has been a demonstrable failure. Biden's approval rating currently has still not rebounded, and his approval rating was at 33% according to at least one pollster. Now, this is a reputable pollster. It's Quinnipiac, and it seems to be an outlier, but still, that should be startling to the Biden administration nonetheless, because that's almost at, like, George W. Bush levels when he was leaving office after the Iraq War. So, you know, the thing is that 
the Democratic Party has proven that their centrist way of doing things, triangulation, trying to hold hands and sing Kumbaya, has been a fucking catastrophic failure. It's been a palpable momentum killer. So what are you going to do? You're going to bring forward some Gen X version of Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg or Kamala Harris and say, oh, well, we're going to do the same thing. I mean, I don't even know what Biden is fighting for. He ran on a public option, isn't even fighting for that. His signature agenda, Build Back Better, it seems like the left fought for it more than Biden fought for it, even though that's not what the left wanted. They wanted to expand uh, or Biden's plan was to expand Medicare. The left wanted Medicare for all. They fought for his agenda more than he did, and he didn't even get that accomplished because he couldn't bring people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema to the table. And perhaps, you know, there would have been no way to get them to play ball. You could use the carrot or the stick approach. I've talked about strategies that he could implement that he chose to not deploy. But even if he failed, that's when you break out the pen. Where's my pen? It's good for visual aid. You break out the pen, you start signing executive orders. He still hasn't done that. So what have you done? And so the answer is he hasn't done enough. He's failed. He's proven us lefties right. So the question is, who's next? Who's going to be the person to carry Bernie Sanders' mantle? And I've thought about this now for two years. And the answer is no one. The answer is no one. There's just nobody with the experience and political savviness that Bernie Sanders have uh, has. I mean, they're members of the squad who are potential presidential prospects. But the problem is that I don't want someone to just run because they have good policy ideas. That's certainly important, of course. But in addition to policy ideas, you need to know how to accomplish that agenda. You need to have experience as a lawmaker. And Bernie is the only one with the knowledge uh, and somebody who I, I I think would actually fight even if things don't look good. So when it comes to this question of should Bernie Sanders run for a third time, if you asked me at uh, the end of his campaign in 2020, my answer was a definite no, because I can't take the heartbreak again. I can't take getting my hopes up and thinking that maybe this country would go in a better direction and then seeing my dreams crushed before my very eyes. I, like, I can't stomach that again. But with time, after sitting on it, I can't stomach the perpetual dread that I feel knowing that this country will never change at the current trajectory that it's headed on. If we have Pete Buttigieg in power, Kamala Harris in power, nothing fundamentally changes. We're going to continue to go back and forth. GOP, Democrat, GOP, Democrat. I've explained this cycle before. It's a death spiral where, you know, after Americans remember how terrible and psychopathic this death cult known as the Republican Party is, they vote for Democrats once again. But then once they realize how incompetent and feckless Democrats are, while well, they get demoralized and they stay home, Republicans win again. And then once Americans are reminded yet again how psychopathic the Republican Party is, they come out and vote for Democrats again. And every single time we see this cycle happen, we're, we're circling the drain. And so the thing that we have to do is break the fucking cycle. And the way that I see it, Bernie Sanders is the only person capable of breaking the cycle. I'm not saying that if he were to get elected, he'd be a panacea. I'm not saying that he will definitely be the next FDR. But what I am saying is that he's the only politician who I'm confident would actually try. Now, Bernie Sanders is not perfect. 
I don't think that he has um he has the assertiveness that you need to be a politician, right? I, I think that he tries to kowtow to the Democratic Party, and I think that that hurt him a lot in 2020. I think that if you run as an outsider, if you run as somebody who isn't trying to just play the establishment game as he did in 2016 more so, I think that that's how you're successful. But talking about strategy or not, that's not necessarily you know what I want to you know tackle currently. The question is, should Bernie Sanders run again? Yes, he should. Yes, he should. Um, I would prefer a 175-year-old version of Bernie Sanders compared to any Gen X, milquetoast, neoliberal who's going to do the same fucking thing. We have to get off of this Bill Clinton mindset of trying to be centrist, trying to be ideologically directly in the middle between the far right and corporate Democrats. It's just not working. The country is deteriorating. Our planet is dying. We need someone who's bold, who makes a difference in people's lives so they don't fall for these dumb fuck culture war bullshit games that the Republican Party continues to play. Now, that's not to say if people had better lives and they had, you know, an education, healthcare, all of a sudden racism would go away and homophobia would go away. But what I'm telling you is that people would overall be less susceptible to far-right radicalization if they saw that they had a government or a president who actually cared about them. Because they would be less inclined to listen to dogmatic idiots like Donald Trump and other far-right ghouls, demagogues, if they knew that Bernie Sanders was trying and fighting. Now, Bernie Sanders is consistently the most popular politician in America, and that's weird I, I feel like i don't understand how that works because americans can on one hand fall for the gop's culture war bullshit accept transphobia accept all of these bad ideas but still think that bernie sanders is good i don't know how bernie sanders does that but he does have crossover appeal and he doesn't actually compromise his policies or morality to have this crossover appeal i think that people just see him as a normal person who's fighting for a better future. So Bernie Sanders should absolutely run again. I would be in favor of it. Uh, am I saying that I think he could win? Uh, no, I, I think that, you know, I'm not going to get my hopes up again. But does it give me a tiny, teeny, tiny, infinitesimal amount of hope at the prospect of Bernie Sanders running again and possibly doing a little bit to change this country, at least set us on a different trajectory? Yeah. It does give me hope. I can't remember the last time that I've been hopeful. It just feels like currently that, you know, um, our fate has basically been determined. We've decided to put profit over people. We've decided to just kill the planet and go backwards. And living with that reality is really almost unbearable to me. Like, I can't take it. So even if my dreams and hopes will be crushed yet again, if he loses for a third time, is it worth it to have just like a year during the primary of hope? Just a tiny bit of hope? Yeah, I think it is. Because it's a little bit of hope or non-stop fucking dread from failed politician after failed politician. Bullshitter after bullshitter. So, let's fucking do it. I'd be all on board with Bernie 2024. Again, not saying I'd get my hopes up, but would I fight to make him the president? Fuck yes, I would, because there's no other person currently who could do it. Bernie's the one person. And as long as he's alive and is healthy cognitively and in physical good health and he wants to do it, 
fuck yeah, I'm down. He doesn't have to do this. He doesn't have to subject himself to the abuse from the media or the smears from the Democratic Party establishment. He doesn't have to do this. But if he wants to, I will back him because I care about this country. And, you know, he's not going to be the one to change everything at this point in time. But all he needs to do is change the direction and show Democrats doing popular things, helping people, fighting the GOP. That's a winning strategy. If he could just show the next generation of congressional Democrats what to do, then I think that that's more than I can ask for. Well, I've got some really unfortunate news for fans of CNN streaming service, CNN Plus. After just one month, it is already shutting down. Now, I, for one, am completely distraught by this news. I'm a huge fan of CNN Plus. For those of you who don't know, laugh all you want, but there are literally dozens of us, okay? I love CNN Plus. How can you not look at that catalog and think, that's amazing? My favorite show is probably the newscast with Wolf Blitzer, but I also do watch Parental Guidance with Anderson Cooper from time to time. But if I'm really feeling daring, I'll tune into Jake Tapper's book club because I know my man always reads the bangers. So I'm definitely always looking out for his recommendations. So to me, I'm definitely sad. I can't help but think that if they had one more show, perhaps Mike Figueredo's Gaming Hour, the platform maybe would have been successful. But either way, here we are. So as Alex Sherman of CNBC reports, Warner Bros. Discovery is shutting down CNN Plus on April 30th, just weeks after the standalone streaming service launched. Warner Media launched the standalone news service less than a month ago on March 29th. It garnered fewer than 10,000 daily active viewers in the two weeks after its launch. Holy shit. CNBC reported last week the company said customers will receive prorated refunds on subscription fees. CNN CEO Chris Licht and Warner Bros. Discovery's head of global stream J.B. Perret were among the executives who addressed CNN staffers during an all-hands meeting Thursday, according to people familiar with the meeting. Licht spoke first, empathizing with staffers that shutting down CNN Plus so quickly was a uniquely shitty situation, the people said. Perret told employees that once new leadership made the decision that CNN Plus didn't fit strategically into the company's plans, the most logical move was to shut it down as soon as possible and not a second longer, two of the people said. He also cited previous discovery launches of niche streaming networks such as Food Network, Kitchen, and Golf TV, and said the company has arrived at the conclusion consumers don't want to pay more money for small services while Warner Brothers Discovery will take streaming risks. It won't undertake efforts where it already knows the end result, he said, according to the people familiar with the meeting. Part of me wants to be incredibly mean and start a petition to save CNN Plus and then get a bunch of people to sign up for it. And then perhaps if we're able to get them to reverse the decision, then we all simultaneously cancel. That would be the most hilarious thing on the planet. But on a serious note, look, I don't know why they're so shocked by this. It's shocking to me that they think this was going to be successful ever. I mean, you don't need a bunch of marketing experts and strategists to explain why this failed. I think it's it's pretty evident. In fact, if you go back to the CNN Plus YouTube channel announcement, they released a trailer and underneath that trailer, there's a comment that's very insightful from YouTube user A Fridge Too Far that predicted this. This person says, this will all fail in spectacular fashion for CNN. And it turned out that this person was absolutely correct. I'm assuming this individual has no training in uh, the market with regard to streaming, I think they just kind of saw what was obvious. Who wants to watch this? 
who would tune in to this? Who would pay for this? I mean, there's there's two issues here, right? So first and foremost, it's CNN. I don't know anyone who enthusiastically watches CNN. I, I just, I, I've never met someone like that. I would like to speak to them if they like CNN. I mean, I don't even know what audience CNN plays to. Perhaps, you know, normies. But who's a big enough fan of CNN to not just watch it religiously, but then pay for additional content? Who consumes that much CNN? I just, I don't know who. I, I, I don't get it. Second of all, um, the market with regard to streaming services is obviously oversaturated. And I mean, the more that streaming services get announced by these large, you know, networks who want a piece of the pie, the more that they're going to end up driving people back to pirating content again. I mean, Netflix is having this issue as well. They lost millions of subscribers. And rather than just like trying to get better content now they're going to crack down on password sharing as if that's going to be better now back in 2017 they actually tweeted that uh love is sharing your passwords but now all of a sudden since they're losing money they're going to crack down on it well i hate to break it to you but if you ban password sharing which i felt like i was already paying for by paying for like four four households or four different simultaneous users either way if you do that you're gonna lose a lot more subscriptions i'm not gonna pay for it like i never watch netflix but i have a subscription because my mom and my niece and my mother-in-law watches it so I, I mean i i have no reason to keep it if you don't let them watch it so i mean I, I think that this is the case with a lot of people you're just going to cut off access to people who wouldn't otherwise subscribe and it's not going to be the best route for you get better content stop releasing dumb shows and shitty movies like do better and people will you know pay for it but this is a bigger issue with streaming in general the market itself has become so disaggregated. Now, if you want to watch one show, you've got to have, you know, a Paramount Plus subscription. If you want to watch, you know, um, this other show, you've got to have HBO Max. It's like, holy shit, we're almost back to the point where the monthly price point was uh, comparable to paying for cable every single month. But that's an antiquated way to watch television because, I mean, who just wants to tune in and have them put something on for you. No, I want to choose what to watch. So uh, I feel like these companies, it, it was inevitable. They're going to get too greedy, bite off more than they can chew and end up shooting themselves in the foot. And this is really what we're seeing. Um, but this is only the tip of the iceberg. CNN, however, even if the market wasn't oversaturated, I still don't think that this would have had a chance because the shows, the catalog, it's so unappealing that I can't fathom anyone actually unironically watching it like i would maybe watch it to make fun of it but watching it for pure enjoyment purposes inconceivable to me I, I just i can't imagine anyone doing it so there you have it cnn plus is shutting down part of me wants to start a petition to save it just for lulls but uh, you know i'm not that cruel um they can take the l and um we'll just uh have to live without them unfortunately you know it's a sad world you know, uh, they'll be the one streaming service that got away, aside from Quibi. But um, yeah, really, uh, really sad for the three viewers of CNN Plus. Excuse me, the 10,000 viewers of CNN Plus, to be fair here. It's insane to me that we get more viewers than them. That's, holy shit, this is a multi-billion dollar company. And this YouTube channel gets more daily viewers than them. That is Holy shit, what a catastrophic failure. This is embarrassing. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook.
You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.